What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up podcast, the podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Camden Okanadi, and joining me tonight is Milton Zerman. Hi, great to be back on the show. My name is Milton, as Camden said, Milton Zerman, and I have worked for years in the field of politics, and it's an honor to be back on the show to discuss politics and current events in our country. So the last time Milton was on, we spoke about politics, we spoke about the the general health of the country, um, um, being that it's becoming more liberal and more progressive, and the state of the economy as well as our, our standard of living may change due to who will be in office. Now, with the election being very close, less than three weeks away, what should voters know? So understanding politics is very difficult. It's, it's basically an industry in itself. It's a career. It's a profession. It's its own field of study. Um, and being that a lot of people may not know the underlying um, education behind politics, and, and it may be that people don't stay up to date with politics by reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the LA Times. What should people know? That's a great, great question. So I think that first and foremost, people should know that this is a very stark choice, right? The way that the media has often portrayed this election is it's between Trump, who is a right-wing ideologue, and Biden, who is a moderate, pragmatic centrist who wants to pull the country together and establish unity. However, I think that's a little bit too simplistic, to, to say the least. I think that this is really an election between two very, very contrasting visions. And I think that when you look at Biden, he's not just a generic center-left candidate, as we've seen before from people like John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, even Al Gore, Bill Clinton. He really has a vision that will, I think, change this country for, for the long run, for the long haul. I think that when you look at, for example, Hacking the Supreme Court. That's something that he's refused to, to answer on. And look, will he do it? Will he not do it? I don't know. But the fact that he hasn't answered is very dangerous because if he were to say right now, no, I'm not going to pack the Supreme Court, and then he gets elected, he wouldn't have a mandate. And then he tried to pack it anyway. Well, there would be a lot of opposition to that because he, w- he, would have a ma- mandate. he wouldn't have a mandate to do so. If he said very clearly, I'm not going to pack the Supreme Court, he wouldn't have a mandate for packing it. But now he's refusing to answer, and that's a very clear, clearly a way to avoid committing to either side. So if he does choose to pack the Supreme Court once he's elected, he could say, look, I didn't commit to it either way when I got elected, so I have a choice for what I'm going to do when it comes to the Supreme Court. So he could pack the Supreme Court, abolish the filibuster, which is, for those that don't know, I'm going to talk a little bit about the filibuster because this is one of the most important I think one of the biggest things that's at stake in this race, basically the filibuster is something that in the United States Senate, you have a majority party and a minority party. Right now, the majority party is the Republicans, the minority party is the Democrats. So to pass a bill, you need a majority votes. That means 50 to 51 votes. However, the minority party can block any piece of legislation so long as 
there's, there aren't 60 votes for it. So as long as the minority party has 40 votes, they could block a piece of legislation. 41 votes, they could block a piece of legislation. However, Biden wants to abolish the filibuster, which would basically allow any bill to be passed if the Democrats have a, a simple ma- majority in the Senate. He also, and that's very dangerous because all kinds of radical proposals could get through, including statehood for the District of Columbia and statehood for Puerto Rico. All And all these proposals together, I think it's a very dangerous mix that could drastically change the future of our country. Now, Trump has a different vision. We all know what his vision is. We've seen it in action these past four years. So it is, and you know, some might approve that vision, some might disapprove, but the point is the choice couldn't be more different between Biden and Trump. I think this election, you, you, they're polar opposites in their vision for the future of this country. Now, to get down to the base of all of politics, I want to speak about division. Why do you think there has to be divide? And why do you think the divide is so wide now? Why is it so extreme? Either you're on the far right or you're on the far left. Why is that? How, how did that become a reality? Another excellent question. So this is something that you have to dig into the history a little bit because I do think that the divide we see now is, is not new. I think there are some aspects of it that are new, but I don't think overall the divide is entirely new. I think that you've had a great degree of polarization in this country going back at least 100 years or at least until the New Deal, I would say. What's different today is that in the old days, there were, within each party, you had much more of a contrast in, ideolog- in ideology. So in the Democratic Party, in the past, I would say prior to the 90s and earlier, the 90s and earlier, you would have conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats. And in the Republican Party, you would have conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans. So there still was a split in this country, there still was a split between the right wing and left wing. However, it didn't align with the parties, right? You would see conservatives in the Republican Party working with conservatives in the Democratic Party and liberals in the Republican Party working with liberals in the Democratic Party. So just to give an example, Nelson Rockefeller was governor of New York. He was also vice president in the end of Nixon's term. He was a liberal Republican. There are other liberal, Eisenhower is more of a liberal Republican. There are plenty of examples and there are conservative Democrats too. So for a long time, the mayor of Los Angeles, the city we're in right now was a very conservative Democrat by the name of Sam Yorty. So right now we see that divide has continued. However, it's much more along party lines. The Republicans have become an entirely conservative party and the liberals have become an entirely liberal party. And this is pretty new. This is something that really is only solidified entirely in the past few decades. So because of that, we see this divide totally among party lines. And I think that's that's amplified the division in a way, or at least in a way that a lot of people have noticed it more than they did before. Now, um, to go back to the basics, um, I believe it's very important for every individual who is of age to use and act on their right to vote. As well as, I do believe that in order to be able to act on your right to vote, you need to understand who's running and what they believe in and make an education educated choice. And I do believe that advocacy um, to help people understand how to vote is very important. Now, can you give us the, the broad pros and cons of both candidates? Pros and cons. So 
Okay, so pros and cons. So first, we'll start with Biden. Even though, look, I'll, I'll be totally upfront. I'm I'm more biased towards Trump, but you know, in an effort to be fair, I'll say start with the pros for Biden. So I think Biden is somebody that will be a little bit more under the radar in terms of his media presence. He won't be somebody that will be, you know, constantly, constantly hearing about making controversial statements, saying things that tick people off or that are not politically correct. I think he'll be somebody that will be much more in the background compared to Trump. And that's something that appeals to a lot of people. Now, would you say this is professionalism? Is this going along the role that you currently possess? Or would you not describe it as that? I don't think it's professionalism. I think he's just always been kind of a, a background guy, even going back to the beginning of his career in the 70s. He's always, he's never been a, a key player in the, or at least I would say he's never been a, a major player in the Democratic Party. He's never been a big player in politics. He's always been somebody that kind of just goes along with his party, somebody that just is there for the ride, kind of, right? Now, on the other hand, would you say that the aggressiveness and the insertiveness that Trump has, more business-minded, more go-getter, more I want to do this and it's my way or the highway, is, is a better fit for that position of being the president of the United States? I think in certain cases, yes. I would say, for example, foreign policy, we need somebody who's relentless. We need somebody who is, is tough and who's willing to hold our opponents' feet to the fire, including our allies at times, including our allies, because our allies haven't always been perfect allies. And we need somebody who will hold them accountable. And especially when it comes to negotiations, um, just foreign policy in general, I think you really need to be a tough guy. And I think that that's somewhere where I think I would see Biden lacking. Now, I want to still continue the, the pros and cons of both candidates. As do I. Um, but I have another question. I think a big part of understanding who each candidate is, is how the foreign populations perceive them. How, how do the people, the citizens of Israel perceive both candidates, the people of Russia, people of China, Brazil, all these other foreign countries, how do they perceive the candidates? Because I think that's a big problem too, where if there's not a good light on the candidates, um, we may see weakness within the United States. And we don't want that. We want to still remain as a world power. And we also want to not seem like a fool or a joke towards for foreign citizens. So how do you think foreign citizens view Trump? And how do you think foreign citizens would view Biden? So, I mean, first of all, I... I understand your point. I don't think it's as important as perhaps you believe, which is fine. No, I no. think that no, I, I think yeah. it's more important um, of the people, voting people, the citizens of the United States, to, to how they view their president. But right. also, it is interesting to see how others view right. the president of the United States. Uh, yeah. I, so I think that, okay, so as I was saying, so I don't think it's quite as important. I think, look, Trump and Biden are both running for president of the United States. They're not running for president of the world. With that said, well, it I is a world. It is a world role because we do lead the world again. And this is an argument that you have presented many times in military. We we fund the UN and, and NATO, um, and and we are essentially one of the world leaders. 
Right. So I think that you, that's absolutely right. And I think that for that reason, I think it's very important to, to look at how the president is going to conduct foreign policy. Um, but I don't think the way that foreign populations perceive the president is as important. But I want to say this. Or I perception say, is respect. Well, I, I don't think that that respect is, is, very, is as important as perhaps you think. I think the way that the president conducts foreign policy and foreign affairs. And look, sometimes the president has to be a strict father. And that's not always going to get him accolades. It's not always going to get him love from the entire world, but the president has to be strict for, or mother. <laughs> but uh, that's the way it is. As for how foreign population perceive him, to answer your actual question, look, we know that Trump is not as, at least according to polls, they show Trump is not as popular among foreign populations as other presidents, like say Obama. But at the same time, when you look at these other countries, interestingly enough, they tend to be Many of them tend to be electing Trump-like leaders, right? You see Boris Johnson being elected. Boris Johnson was elected in the United Kingdom. You mentioned Brazil, Bolsonaro, right? Modi in India. So, and, and I could go on and on and on. But when you see that, you have to think to yourself, whatever their opinion is on Trump, I think the, the imitation is the, is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Um, so I think that when, when they're electing leaders who have very similar philosophy and ideo ideology, uh, including towards foreign policy that Trump does, I think that that speaks for itself. And I think with that said, it varies country to country. From what I've seen, Trump is pretty popular in India. He's pretty po very, very popular in Israel. In some countries like Canada, he's less popular. But with that said, you see people like Modi and Bolsonaro and Boris Johnson elected. And I think that shows that Trump's Viewpoint has a big sway across the world's population. Netanyahu too. Now, would you say that the world as a whole is becoming more liberal, uh, more conservative? That's uh, that's tough to say. I think that I think I don't really believe that uh, things go one way or another. That there's a trend towards becoming more conservative or becoming more liberal. I think it ebbs and flows, and I think oftentimes. One is relying on the other. You have a wave of liberalism and then a wave of conservatism in reaction. I will say this, in a lot of countries, you see a, I mean, look, we think of, first of all, let me say, we think of the Western world as becoming more liberal. And that's something that I think a lot of people would say, and a lot of people notice that the Western world is becoming more liberal, that you see liberal leaders in countries like, like Germany and like Merkel, who's, who's a conservative, in her country, but we would consider a liberal in the United States. So you definitely see trend towards liberalism, at least for now in a lot of Western countries. But in other countries, you see huge conservative trend. For example, India, which was a liberal, essentially socialist country for decades. For the first 70 or so years of India's existence, it was ruled by the Socialist Party, the, in the Indian National Congress. And now it's the Indian National Congress is a basically all but dead. I mean, it could make a comeback, of course, but Modi's party swept in two elections in a row. And now the right really has essentially total control of India. The same exact trend is going on in Israel. Israel had a very similar story where it was ruled by the Labour Party for decades and decades. And now it's very, very clearly, at least we're now trending in a conservative direction. Netanyahu has been in charge for over a decade. And you see the same thing in Turkey. You see the same thing in several countries. So what do 
those citizens of those countries see that we don't because given today's stories and events and, and how things perceive to end up, right. we may end up with a liberal country. Right. Well, look, I wouldn't say that we don't see the things that they're seeing because I think that it's related to Trump. It's related to Boris Johnson. It's related to Brexit. I think that it's all, it's all interlinked. I think that there are several things they're seeing. Number one, I think a big part of it, if you just cut down to the core, is, is markets. I think that people are realizing that after decades and decades of, of socialist-based economies, they're realizing that it's bad for growth, that the countries have stagnated that have, that have done that, including India, including Israel. And I think that moving in a more free market direction has greatly benefited so them. I think that's of, one big thing. So get rid of the nationalism and open up markets to free competition. I think that's a big part of it. Okay. Okay. And, I, and by the way, look, when you say get rid of the nationalism, even national, remember, Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's a nationalist. Modi is a nationalist. Trump's a nationalist. But even though they're nationalists, their policies on economy are still much more uh, economically, fiscally conservative. They're still much more open markets based, free trade based um, than low taxes, than any of their liberal opposition. Now, in a lot of the countries that you spoke about, India, the UK, Israel, you can say that a majority of the voting people may be affluent, more educated, wealthy, and they have the power. Um, in the US, because of our standard of living and the affordability, we have voters who are affluent as well as not affluent. And I feel like because of our infrastructure and because of our technology, we have the ability to have both. Whereas in India, you have people living in slums and you could say that these people living in slums may have a more difficult time voting, casting their ballots, et cetera, knowing how to do it, even having interest to do it. So, because of this, and because of the viewpoints of the more conservative person, would you say that these nations are becoming more conservative because they have an affluent voting population um, wanting to pr propose and pass laws that would benefit them, whereas we have both populations, non-affluent and affluent, both business and employees both working together, and that's why in our case, we may see laws going against the corporate world and more towards the socialist world. Well, take Israel as an example. When you look at Netanyahu and you look at the, the base for, for the conservative party in Israel, Likud, it's actually not the wealthy. It's actually generally the working class, um, especially Mizrahi Jews, Sephardic Jews, more recent immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa. Who are the base of, of the right wing in Israel, who are the base of Likud. So in large part, it's not the wealthiest of society. In fact, the wealthiest of society largely are Ashkenazi Jews who have lived in the country for decades and decades, who make up the base for the Labour Party and who were the base of the Labour Party during its periods of dominance from 1948 to 1977. And I think that when you look at the United States too, I've talked about this in, in both my previous appearances on this podcast, that 
when you look at cities like Beverly Hills, like Marin County, like San Francisco, the upper class tends to be very liberal. So I don't think. So then why is that? So the psychology of it is most human beings would want to keep what what they have earned and what they have built up and they want to pass it down by legacy and, and they don't want to be taxed. Um, It doesn't feel good to, to give more money um, than you need. So why do you think the wealthy United States are more willing to be taxed more and, and give away their wealth and be more socialist? Well, I think that we have had a very long period of time in this country in which we have not seen the level of liberal dominance that we could be seeing in the near future. In other words, we had Bush as president for two terms. We've had Trump for the past four years. And during Obama's term, for all but the first two years of his term, parts of Congress were controlled by Republicans, right? The Republicans won back the House in 2010, two years after Obama was elected, and they won the Senate in 2014. So we haven't had really large-scale liberal dominance, dominance for, for, for a while, I would say. Um, so I don't think that, I think a lot of these wealthy people don't really understand the gravity of the economic issues. I don't think, look, when Biden's tax plan, I mean, when you look at how much he wants to raise taxes, and the fact is, as I mentioned earlier, if he, if he eliminates the filibuster, he could do that easily. If somebody like Bernie gets elected, and, and I'm not saying, I'm saying somebody like Bernie, so Ocasio-Cortez, somebody of that mold elected in the future, that's something that we've never seen before, or at least since the 1960s when we, we had LBJ or somebody like FDR. So I think they don't really understand the consequences of, the, of this liberal economics. They don't really understand the effect on the economy, the effect on business. I also think, though, when it comes to the really wealthy, the super wealthy, how much, however much you raise their taxes, they're not going to really suffer from it because they could afford to give up that money. And in many cases they're immune from the effect on business. I think a lot of this regulation hurts small businesses and the middle class a lot more than hurts the upper class. And I think that's the key. Amazon executives, people you know who are executives of big companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, or just people who are millionaires or make more, when they're already established, you know, they're not struggling to start a small business. They don't have to suffer as much from these regulations. The middle class does. The working and, class and does. Not only that, so you talk about how their pay is tied to their stock options, which these tech stocks will these tech stocks will rise indefinitely. And and it's crazy. They're they're at record high valuations and when their pay is tied to their stock options, they don't really care. As well as a lot of these billionaires that you speak of already pledged all of their net worth to charity. So when they pass away, instead of giving it to, to their kin and, and keeping it for legacy, they already pledged that they're going to be giving away a majority of their net worth. So again, I don't think, um, I don't think it's for the money. I think it's, it's another reason because again, if, if they cared about being taxed more, if they cared about, uh, keeping their wealth, they wouldn't pledge it away. Right. I mean, I just think that it's when I, when I'm talking about this, it's not even about the money. It's about, it's about, it's not even about how much, when, when I think that fiscal, fiscal conservatism, those economic policies, I don't think of it in terms of how much money you can keep, how much money can rich people think. I think of it in terms of how is this going to benefit the economy, right? 
these people, you're right, they could give away millions of dollars or a lot of money and still be well off. But the bigger thing is what's the effect on the economy? It affects the economy. When you implement these left-wing economic policies, it, it harms the economy. It harms business. However, these wealthy people do not get affected by it because they're already established. They already have established businesses. And even if there's red tape and regulations implemented, they don't really have to deal with it. They already have their businesses. They've already crossed those, they've already crossed those hurdles. But small businesses, again, working class people, middle class people who are trying to start businesses and have to deal with these regulations, these cumbersome regulations, a lot of the time it's too much for them and it really harms small business and it doesn't hurt big businesses. And that's why I think it's so easy for these big corporations and the people they hire and the wealthy for them to, they don't really have to deal with the effects of, of and if anything, it helps them because it eliminates small competitors. Now, to go back to my, my main question, um, we want this to be more of an educational podcast. Um, and it, it's difficult nowadays to find uh, non-biased educational content through the media. And, yeah. and you know that. Yeah, definitely. So, um, again, what do you think the pros and cons are of both candidates? Yeah. And also the proposals um, for yeah. the economy, for society, for politics, for our everyday lives. Yeah. How will both candidates so, benefit yeah. our, our lives as well as um, hurt our lives? Right. So I already, I already talked about the pros for Biden, which I think that he's somebody who will be a little bit more in the background. He won't be in the media as constantly for, for controversial reasons. Cons for Biden will... I could go on and on, but but I, I would say one of the big things, and, and this is something that I think voters on, on both sides of the aisle should be able to agree with, is that we don't know what we're going to get with Biden, right? He hasn't committed to, I talked about earlier how he hasn't committed if he's going to pack the court or not, but that's just a, a metaphor in a way for his entire platform. He hasn't committed to anything one way or another. We don't know what kind of a president he's going to be. Is he going to be a far left president or a center left president? We don't know. I personally think it's going to be more on the far left side because he's somebody that he's somebody that I want to get into this briefly is that a lot of people think of Biden as a moderate. I don't think he's a moderate. I think that he's somebody who's just he's a party line guy. He's a party hack. He's somebody that just he will he's since the 70s. He's just been somebody that just goes along with the party. Whatever the issue is, he will go along with his party on it. So during periods of time when the Democratic Party was a little more moderate, like in the 90s during the Clinton years, he was moderate. During times when the party was more radical, he was more radical, right? So he changes his beliefs depending on where the Democratic Party is at the time. And now we're in a period where I think the Democratic Party has become a lot more radical. I think he will govern as a radical with well, his party. Doesn't that what Democratic voters want as the representative? To, to follow the party's guidelines and what and their beliefs? Uh, I think it depends. Because, I think that because yeah. Trump started out as an independent. Yeah. And then he slowly went into the Republican Party. Right. Now, doesn't a party voter member want their representative to follow the party's guidelines and rules and beliefs? Uh, I think that. Not entirely. Not entirely. I think that every party is a, it has a, there's a scale of people within the party. And I think that when you look at the Democratic Party right now, 
the Democratic Party is really dominated by this coastal mindset, coastal them people like Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom's, I think, a perfect example of the Democratic Party's mainstream right now. Really, it's really dominated by this California, New York ideology. But that doesn't apply to a lot of the country. And Democrats in a lot of these swing states, the people who will determine this election are, are moderate Democrats. And that's why a lot of these people hope that Biden will represent them because they are moderate Democrats. And when we look at some of these governors, for example, Roy Cooper, Democratic governor of uh, North Carolina, he's a moderate. But I don't think there's much room for that kind of person at the national level in the party today. And I think a lot of these people in these swing states, they are moderate Democrats. They're Democrats, but they're more towards the center. And they're hoping that Biden will represent people like them. But I don't think he will. I think he will more represent, again, the West Coast, Kamala, Gavin ideology, and East Coast, Ocasio-Cortez ideology, Bernie ideology. Now, um, being that you are a Trump supporter yep. and you may hold some biases, what do you think are Trump's biggest weaknesses and what he's, he's not doing right? So I think that for Trump, one thing that's very hard for him is staying on message. I think that, and I think sometimes he doesn't do a great job of articulating things. And you see that during the debates, you see that during the town halls. I think that there are a lot of issues that if he was, he's not, and I think he is a very charismatic person, a very entertaining person. He is a showman. When it comes to really articulating the issues, he's not the great communicator that Reagan was. And I'll, I'll watch a debate or I'll watch an interview and I hear him say something and I agree with what he's saying, but I just think to myself, he could have explained that 20 times better. And if he would have explained that the way a Reagan could or the way a mm, Mike Pence could, I think he would win a lot more people over and I think that's one of his greatest flaws, now, if not his greatest flaw. Now, we haven't really spoke about the debate because the last time we spoke, the debate never happened. It didn't happen, yeah. So what are your thoughts on the, on, the, on the presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? How do you think that the public perceived it? How do you think it went well and, and, and went wrong? So a lot of people, I think that the media narrative right now is that it was a huge loss for Trump and, and that he was totally out of line and he interrupted. I don't really agree with that narrative. I don't think he did. It was a stellar performance from him, but I think that he had a lot of great moments. For example, when he held Biden's feet to the fire on the, on the Hunter Biden situation, which hopefully we get into after this, the media is not asking him about it. The media is not holding him accountable on that. And Trump said, look, your son got $3.5 million from the mayor of Moscow. He said, your son is working for this company. With, with He has no experience in the field. And he's working for this company, Burisma. He's holding Biden to account on that. And I thought that was a great moment because no. the media is not holding him accountable. Well, why is that important? Why does that represent Joe Biden's reputation and, and who he is as a being? Why, why does it matter? Say that I judge you on, on what your brother or what your father does. Does that represent you as, as an individual? Well, what that shows is that he's he's using his position to enrich his family members. He's using the position to enrich his, his son. There's no other reason why his son would get a position like that for a company like Burisma. He was getting paid, I think, in the millions per year. Uh, I don't know the exact amount, so don't quote me on that. But he was being paid a 
huge amount of money for, for what he did. And he had very little experience and he, there's no other reason that he would have received that position aside from the fact that his father was vice president, which essentially means that his son was selling his father's influence. And I think that is, I mean, that's, that's the well, definition of corruption. Well, and look, now we're seeing doesn't a lot of people do that. Um, the Jenners with the Kardashians, the Saudi prince with the Saudi king, everyone, if their parents are influential and affluent, they become influential and affluent and they can leverage that fame and that power. Yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't vote for the Jenners or for the Saudi royal family for president. I can tell you that. But look, now we're seeing in this email that it's pretty clear that Biden actually met with a representative from Burisma from this company in Washington, D.C. And that's just, it's not a good look. And, and we, I want it personally, I want answers. And I know a lot of Americans want answers on this. And this is, this is a legitimate concern for a lot of people. And, and also, and this is a big thing, Biden could be compromised in terms of, you know, there could be dirt on him or there could be information on him or perhaps his son or his family from, foreign actors from Ukraine, from, from China, he could be compromised exploited. and exploited and blackmailed. Well, again, um, and this has been written about and speaking about many times with Trump's real estate dealings and with his company right. before he was elected president, he owed a lot of debt to a lot of people, right. especially Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. And you would also say that because of, of how much leverage he was holding and because how much is his debt equity ratio is which is absurd. A lot of people can exploit him due to him being in debt to them. So Perhaps. it can work both ways. Perhaps. I mean, there are a lot of politicians who are in debt. You know, there are some politicians who are running for president. I forgot who exactly. I know Scott Walker was one of them, but there are some politicians in 2016 running for president who held prominent positions, who had negative networks, who owed money. Owing money is a totally normal thing. But it's but not, I think it's not that only that. You owe money, interest, whatever. You have a maturity period. You could get uh, leeway with with when you when you pay back your money. But say that you owe me a million dollars, and you're having a hard time paying it back, and you're running for maybe the the mayor of Bedford, the street I live on, uh, or city council of Bedford, and you owe me money, and you're having a hard time, and the maturity date or the due date's coming up. And you want to extend it? I'll say okay. I'll extend it for you, but you need to you need to vote on. I get a, a private parking space in front of my apartment, and you'll have to agree with me because you owe me money. So again, of course, a lot of people are in debt to a lot of a lot of people. Banks, uh, they owe mortgage. They owe a lot of a lot of debt. That's how the economy runs off of debt. Right. But again, it is it is a, a form to overpower an individual. Okay. Well, that could apply to a lot of things, but what you're ta all talking about now is it's hypotheticals, right? You're saying hypotheticals. hypothetically this hypothetically this could happen with Trump. Hypothetically. I want to see I want to see proof that this is happening or proof that this will happen because I haven't seen anything. And Trump, look, there's a huge difference. Trump was a businessman before he became president and he was buying property and he was paying mortgages. Biden was the vice president of this country, the second most powerful position of this country. And while he was vice president, he was essentially, his family was essentially selling his influence and, and setting up meetings with him and foreign actors. 
while he was vice president, right? And that's not hypothetical. We have essentially proof. We saw these emails that show that he, he was meeting with these people. We have proof. So this isn't a hypothetical. This is something set in stone. This is something we see. And it's very concerning. And I want to see some answers. Now, and now, he tried to, but Trump tried to hold him accountable. I want to get back to the debate first. Tried to hold him accountable. There are some other good moments where Trump asked him about packing the Supreme Court. He should answer that. Biden said a few weeks ago, he said the American people don't deserve an answer. Well, why not? You know, why don't we deserve frankness? Why don't we deserve honesty? Why don't we deserve to know? This is one of the biggest issues. The Supreme Court, that's an entire branch of government. And we should have an answer on that. And the moderator, who is incredibly biased, Chris Wallace, registered Democrat, as far as I know, asked him, will you pack the Supreme Court? And Biden refused to answer, and he didn't hold him accountable. So Trump tried to hold him accountable. When Trump said, which law enforcement groups endorse you? And Biden didn't have an answer. I thought there were some great moments and some things that really, um, you know, I think put Biden in a negative light over the course of the debate. Now, that's not to say Trump, again, it wasn't a stellar performance from him. It wasn't exceptional. He had some weak moments, but Biden also had some weak moments in that debate. Now, uh, a lot of people watched the debate. It was highly viewed um, and, and most likely around the world. And it was very entertaining. Very comical, very entertaining. And I think a lot of people would describe the debate as that, entertaining. Instead of informative, instead of educational, instead of professional, let's call it entertaining. Given how the debate presented itself, do you think that that gives a bad light to our political scene in the U.S. as a whole? Um, I think that it's... I think that perhaps, but I think that it's a... Does it matter? I, I think it's... Look, I think it's a symptom of much bigger problems, right? This debate in itself is not such a big deal. It was a one-hour event that came and went, but I think it's a symptom of much bigger political division. And it goes far beyond the debate. It goes back to the... It goes back to, you know, these contentious Supreme Court hearings we've been... Partisanship and, and the, the viciousness of a lot of politicians like Nancy Pelosi... And just this, this vitriol on both sides, I think the debate is just, is just a manifestation of that. It's just one manifestation of that. Now, going back to the debate itself, now, did that look bad? I, I think, for, to me, what looks bad is when we have a candidate for president who very well may get elected, who I think will get elected, who's not answering basic questions and who can't articulate responses to, to core issues and core platforms like will he pack the supreme court or not that's that to me looks bad and i think that looks bad to a lot of people now i think um the biggest observation that most likely everyone has made between both candidates is trump is sharper he speaks better he's more on top of it mentally um and and biden is not he's slower it takes him more time to develop his thoughts and his words but can you judge a candidate on that, on their mental ability and their speaking ability? Well, I think that with Biden, there's a lot, there's a lot going around that maybe it's a um, could have to do with early stages of dementia or or some other form of uh, age related uh, mental faculty issue, um, and that is very possible. 
I think that when you look at Biden eight years ago, when you look at the Biden debate with Paul Ryan, he was a totally different guy. He was sharp. He was on top of things. He was on point. And when you look at him now, it's clearly a very different guy. And clearly he's lost a lot of what he had. And again, I don't think this is an age thing entirely. I think when you look at a lot of people, like for example, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter is in his nineties and he's a sharp guy, articulate, sharp, smart, charismatic, but Biden, you could clearly tell that I think there's something going on. I don't know what it is, but with that said, I don't think it's a big problem yet, but I think that being president is a very stressful job. It's a job that takes years out of people. You look at Obama at the beginning of his term and Obama at the end of his term, it's like a different guy in terms of in terms of how much he aged because it just it takes so much out of you, it beats you down. And when you see something like Biden and he's like this going in, how's he going to be like going out? Can he really handle the pressure? Can he handle the stress? Can he handle the constant tension? Staying up late, negotiations with with foreign adversaries like China, Russia, Turkey. It's it's I don't know if he can handle it, to be honest. And that is something that I think people have a right to be concerned about. Now, a lot of people have been saying that this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I think we've spoke about this on our previous podcasts. Um, but again, I want to reiterate this. Why is this the most important election of our lifetime? Well, I think it goes back to, and look, our lifetime, we were born in 1998, so there haven't been that many elections. But I think that it goes back to the beginning of what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode, where I said, you have two very contrary, contrasting views, stark difference. And that is entirely true. That is something I told the stakes. We have not seen a, a, a contender in, in decades who has had a vision as as radical as at least what Biden's open to. Not necessarily what he's promised to do, but what he's open to. Packing the Supreme Court or limiting the filibuster, making Washington, D.C. a state, which some would say goes against the intention of creating a neutral political district in terms of, in terms of Congress, in terms of the Senate making Puerto Rico a state, which is, is a very contentious issue. Even on the island of Puerto Rico, a lot of people in Puerto Rico do not want Puerto Rico to be a state. They want it to be a separate country. So when you look at that, you know that would add four members to the Senate, possibly six, because I've even heard some talk about Guam, packing the Supreme Court, eliminating the filibuster, Green New Deal. This is a very, uh, maybe radical is a little bit of a biased term, but it's a very ambitious agenda. And we know Trump is an ambitious man. He has an ambitious vision for our country as well that he's tried to implement the last few years. So there really is a, a stark choice in this election. And I think that's why it's so important. And it could really determine um, which direction our country is going to go, not just for the next four years, but for decades to come. And we haven't seen such a stark choice. Now, Given that Trump has has been elected in 2016 and he has had one term for four years, why would people vote for him again? Um, he did maybe a great job. Maybe he didn't do a great job. Why would people vote for him again? I think that he he well, let's get to the I think the big reason, which is the economy. 
I think we're living in a time period where obviously the economy is not in a great state, to say the least. And a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet. And we want to see our economy go back to normal, go back to where it was before this pandemic. And we have seen that Trump has the ability to build this economy up because he did it once before. And he brought our economy to one of the greatest places it's it's been at in, in our lifetime, at least. And a lot of people trust Trump's ability to build our economy back again. And a lot of people know that lowering taxes, um, keeping uh, the lower level of regulation that Trump has tried to implement um, would help our economy out. Whereas Biden raising taxes, increasing regulations, raising the corporate tax, which is something that just to me makes absolutely no sense. Look, our corporate tax before Trump came in office was something like 30%. And I believe Trump lowered it to around 21%. I don't know if you know this, but you know that the Scandinavian countries that are seen as a model by the left all have corporate tax rates around 21-22%. These so-called socialist countries of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark all have, again, corporate tax rates in the low 20s, similar to Trump's corporate tax rates. So we know that even these, these supposedly far-left countries have very competitive, they're, they're smart in that way, they have competitive corporate tax rates. And raising it to, to oh, back to over 30%, which Biden wants to, or around 30%, which Biden wants to do, which is in his tax plan, that would be, it would be poison for our economy. It's basically punishing U.S. businesses. It's basically penalizing U.S. businesses for existing in our country. And it's helping foreign businesses and it's hurting our, our country's economy. Raising taxes would, would hurt our economy. We need to, we need to keep a low level of regulation. We need to keep these um, these business-friendly policies that Trump has implemented. I think that's the number one reason. I also think that a lot of people trust Trump to deal with a lot of challenges, global challenges that we very well may have to deal with in the next few years. Dealing with China is a big thing, especially in light of what's happened with China throughout this, this pandemic, where, where in large part their response to the pandemic is responsible for spreading it spreading throughout the world, where you see more and more human rights abuses. And a lot of people are wondering what what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to do something. I don't, I hope, and I don't think it it should result in a war, but we need a smart, shrewd, tough diplomat to deal with them. And I think a lot of people trust Trump to deal with a lot of these issues, not just China, but, but foreign policy, the peace deals with Israel. He has a global vision and he's done a good job implementing it. And I think, and I know a lot of voters think that a few more years in the white house would do incredible things for, for the state of the world and for, for U.S. foreign policy and for the economy. And there are other reasons as well, but I think that's I think those are some of the biggest reasons, I would say. Now, we will get to the topic of the Supreme Court, but I have two questions for you. Um, first is, say that Biden is elected yeah. and he raises the corporate tax rate to not an unbelievable high level, but definitely an unsustainable level. How do you think the economy respond to that? And how do you think corporations respond to that? Do you think that they will make their headquarters overseas and and incorporate in another country where the tax rate is lower? Or do you think that they'll stay here and and pay that higher tax rate, given that they they love uh, the economy and they're very patriotic um, of the U.S.? Well, I wish I could put that much faith in these companies, but unfortunately I can't. 
Um, I think that a lot of these companies would like to be American companies, but I think that when you make it tough for them to remain in America, when you make it tough for them to conduct their affairs in America, they're going to, they're going to conduct their business elsewhere. And our corporate tax rates, which Biden, again, his plan is to raise our corporate tax rates to around 30%, which is what it was before the Trump years. And when Trump lowered our corporate tax rates, businesses did start moving back. It did help our economy. And I think that if you raise it back, you're going to start seeing businesses leave again. And I think it will, I think it will be a, it will be, it will be bad because I think that then businesses will lose faith in America's economy. Trump lowered them. If it, they were high before Trump lowered them. If they're raised again, I think a lot of these businesses will lose faith in America's economy. And they'll say, look, even if a Republican comes back into office and lowers them again, there's just so much uncertainty and it could go back up anytime. And a lot of these businesses will lose faith in, in America's economy and start moving to businesses with more, with more business friendly, mo- moving to countries with more business friendly environments. Now, on to the topic of the Supreme Court. This has been in the media um, for the last week and a half, two weeks. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So, first of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about Justice Ginsburg legacy because she passed away recently. She's somebody that I think she, in recent decades, she's been, a lot of people would say, the leader of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court. Um, the liberal wing of the Supreme Court, just prior to her death, consisted of her, as well as Justices Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer. So she was kind of considered by a lot of people to be the unofficial leader of that branch. Um, she had been around the longest, I believe, out of all of them. And she had very firm, very strong beliefs and influenced the more recent arrivals to the court, like Sotomayor and, uh, and Kagan, who were both appointed by Obama. So that's a little bit of her legacy. I think in some ways, um, I think that there has been a tendency to overstate her, her influence on the court. And I mean, that is no disrespect to her, of course. It's just that she was never somebody that really um, determined the outcome of cases. And a lot of it has to do with just the, the consistency of the court, right? That there was always, for the most part, four liberals, four on the more conservative side and one swing vote. So Kennedy was, was a big player, Anthony Kennedy, before he retired. More recently, it's been Chief Justice Roberts. And before that, it was, uh, I believe, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was uh, appointed by Reagan. And she was the, the swing vote for a while. So she had a huge influence at the court. And she was also the first um, female member of the court. So it does kind of surprise me a little bit, actually, that O'Connor is not remembered as much as this trailblazer for for a woman in the legal profession because she was the first woman on the Supreme Court. And it's interesting. It's almost as if she's been written out of history in a way, or at least our, our consciousness today, where when people talk about Ginsburg as its trailblazer for a woman in the legal profession, which to a certain degree maybe she was, but but O'Connor was was again the first. And she was also extremely influential in the court. She really determined the outcome of many, many major cases. So I think that kind of surprises me. But that's a, that's a side note, I guess. I think 
on the topic of, of, of what's going on now with, with uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the court, I think there is a tendency um, among liberals to, uh, or among the left to uh, over-exaggerate what the stakes are when it comes to Barrett's appointment in the Supreme Court. I think that when it comes to the judges, I think there are liberal judges, and then of course there are more conservative judges. But I, I don't, re- I wouldn't really say there are really any really conservative judges in the way that are liberal judges. I think conservative judges have a clear philosophy, which is we're strict constitutionalists. We have strict interpretation of the Constitution, and we're bound by that. They're not bound by adherence to conservative policy initiatives or policy goals or adherence to conservative ideology. They're bound by a strict view of the Constitution. Whereas a lot of these liberal justices are driven by more of a just desire to further the cause of progressivism through the court. I do think Clarence Thomas is maybe more of a conservative justice. He's more of somebody who just, he'll take the conservative side of any issue, no matter what. But most of the other justices, again, they're more constitutionalist than they are conservatives. And that's very clear when you see the fact that Roberts defects to the other side a lot. Chief Justice Roberts defects to the liberal side in a lot of major cases, plenty recently, including the census case. Kavanaugh, uh, sorry, not Kavanaugh, Gorsuch defected to the other side a couple times too in major cases involving uh, Native American land use and one involving uh, transgender um, and just LGBT rights in general when it comes to hiring practices. So a lot of these so-called conservative justices do flip to the other side very frequently, um, including on major cases. So I think that just goes to show that these supposedly conservative justices are not as, they're not ideologues in the same way that I think the left characterizes them as. And I expect the same of Justice Barrett. Um, I'd like to move on now. Yeah. Um, Given that a lot of people vote based off of selfish beliefs. Um, they vote because they believe in a certain thing. And legally, they're not allowed to vote because someone else has told them to vote that way. And, and again, other people cannot fill out other people's ballots. That's, it's highly illegal. Um, a lot of people want to know, how would their lives change if Biden was elected, and how would their lives change if Trump is reelected? That's a great question. Well, I think that's so important. I think that, as you touched upon earlier, there are a lot of drives to get more and more people to vote. But what I find rather unfortunate is that there aren't as many drives to get people educated on the issues, right? We shouldn't just be encouraging people to just vote for the sake of voting. We should say vote and here's information to help you make your decision. Exactly. Here's information on the I filled out my ballot uh, three days ago and they give you, they give you options. So you have to, you have to elect someone for, for like educational County boards and Supreme court and other judges. Um, and then of course the, the president, um, and then also you have to vote on props if you accept this prop or not, but they give you the description for the props, but they don't educate you on what it means. And, and even for me, I had a difficult time understanding what each prop was and, and, and how 
if I say yes, what does that mean? If I, and if I put no, what does that mean? So that's again, so important. The propositions are so important. I can't overstate this in California because the proposition you're voting on on the law, right? This isn't just voting for somebody who's voting for the law. You're voting for for a law for for a change to California's constitution or for so that that's a big deal because that will directly impact all of us. And then and I think it's so important to understand them. A lot of people just don't understand it. And you have to go out of your way to do the research, which maybe is a good thing. You know, it's good that people have to, you know, go out a little bit and, and find it out, but, but they make it difficult. They do no, make it but, difficult, but yeah, it, it's good for people to go out of their way and do the research to educate themselves. But what percent of people actually do that? Very small percent. Exactly. And it's not exciting. It doesn't get people's excitement. The and way Canada does. it's and, very difficult to vote the right way based off of your own beliefs um, because of advertisements and because of the media where there's commercials and advertisements for each prop and for each representative and for each candidate and for each congressperson that it could skew your, your, your way to vote. So you watch this one commercial and it's very... It's very persuasive on, okay, I shouldn't vote for Prop 22 because I want drivers of, of Uber and Lyft to not be independent contractors and to be employed so they can get benefits um, because of the persuasive commercial. So again, that's only an example, but it's very hard because there's commercials and, and for people that don't want to take the time to educate themselves. There's a lot of misleading exactly. information put out, especially in regards to props to sway people. And that's, that's dangerous. And that's why it's so important to do independent research. And I encourage everyone to do it. I think that's a great thing to do, but it is unfortunate that sometimes you have to dig deep to get that information. Uh, as for your initial question, how will people's lives change? I think, look, I'll say this, the most immediate change is the economy. I think that with Biden, you're going to see your taxes go up. I think with Trump, you'll likely see your taxes stay the same or potentially go down even more. I think that with Biden, you will see a recovery, but I think it will be a much slower recovery. And it will be a recovery that that will, I think you'll, you'll see a little bit more um, in terms of benefits, jobless benefits welfare benefits, unemployment benefits, you'll see a little bit more of that. But I think that you'll, you will see a little bit more of a stagnant economy, a slower recovery, and very little growth. Whereas with Trump, I think you'll see a little bit um, less of the, the, these kinds of benefits, less unemployment benefits, or at least a lower amount of money, but you will see a quicker recovery, a quicker return to the level we were at before, and more growth over the next few years. I also think you'll see under Trump, America is more of a world power, whereas I think Biden's policies are more, you'll see more, uh, you'll, you'll see under Trump a more dominant role for America on the world stage, whereas under Biden, you'll see more of a um, backseat role, more of a, a role, you know, will be at the table with the European Union, at the table with Canada and and and. New Zealand and Australia and Japan, but less of a dominant role on the world stage. And I think that's something that you'll see continue. But as for how it will affect you, how it will affect personal lives, I think what I said earlier about the economy is the key. Now, um, that's, that's in the long term. That's like that's in the, the, the wide horizon. Um, yeah. And once they're elected, that, that could happen. 
Now I want to know, on election night, when the public knows who, who won the election, uh, either Biden or Trump, what will happen the next day? What will happen that night? What will the futures markets, the stock market futures indicate? Is, is it going to be a good thing? Is it going to be a bad thing? Will there be uh, a stock crash? Will, uh, will, will there be wide violence? Will there be a civil war? I think that's very tough to say. I think that when, you, when it comes to the stock market, what happens on the night is not necessarily of represent is not necessarily representative of what will be to come. When Trump was elected, and a lot of that has to do with uncertainty. When Trump was elected, the, the stock market immediately went down. Yes. But over the next few years, it went up drastically. Correct. So a lot of it just has to do with uncertainty. It has to do with, um, I mean, that's really the, the you know what it is. But we I think we, that you have seen volatile times during Trump's. Trump's term with 2018 trade war with China. That was yeah. huge. That that disrupted markets a lot. It did. Um, and then uh, again, the end of, of 2019, yeah. we saw a correction um, due to the interest rates. Uh, and again, but people perceive never- that people perceive that as Trump influencing the Federal Reserve, even though those two departments. Um, are, are not linked in any way. They, they have to act independently. Right. But at its lowest, the stock market under Trump has never been lower than the highest that the market was Correct. under President Obama. Aside from maybe at the, at the um, abyss of the, of the coronavirus crisis, maybe for a little bit, it, it went below where the, the stock market was when Obama was president. Yes, but, but that's due to other but things. That's right. They, but they, I think that even now the stock market is, is far above what it was at the height of Obama's correct. presidency. And even in the midst of the trade war and all this volatility, it, never, it was always significantly higher than it but, was. But here. people could factor that for a different reason. It could be because the Federal Reserve has pumped in so much liquidity that there's a ton of money going around. And that's what is, is influencing the optimism for the stock market, um, there could be a lot of things. I think it mostly has to do with lower corporate tax rates. And then again, because deregulation. Yes, that's true. But again, because uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley support Biden, Biden. I think you're going to see in the short term. I think if Biden is elected, which I think will be the case, I just want to make that clear. I think if Biden is elected. Immediately, you're going to see a, a boost in the stock market, mostly because of that, because of Wall Street um, and uh, Silicon Valley support for Biden. So I think in the short term, you will see a small boost um, in the stock market uh, if Biden is elected. But I don't think that will last. I think you're going to see stagnation and possibly even decline over the long term. But in the short term, yeah, I think that you will see a little bit of a kick, a little bit of a boost. As for violence, um, look, if Trump's elected, we know there's going to be violence. There was last time. I mean. It's just, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's the new norm. It's our norm nowadays. Um, whenever there's something that the radical left doesn't like, um, there's bound to be some level of violence. And we've seen plenty of violence over the past few months. We're going to see more. And I think, yes, if Trump is elected, you're going to see a lot of violence. If Biden is elected, I don't think you're going to see violence. I, I think you're going to see a lot of celebrating in the street, fireworks, Hugging, you know, in, in our cities, and you know that's where media is located. So, <laughs> kissing, you know, you know the drill. Um, I think this was 
a very informative very conversation, informative, yeah. and I, I really appreciate you joining and, and having this conversation with Anytime. me. Is there anything else you'd like to add? That's about it. All except for hope to be back on soon and to discuss more topics. And uh, hey, November third is not too far away. Let's see what and happens. Again, uh, please vote. Please vote. Uh, if you can and you have the ability to, please, please inform vote. yourself on on the issues, on the candidates, including the local candidates, and especially on the propositions in California, because there are a lot of very important ones in California this election. I agree. Well, thank you all for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast, and we'd love your feedback and to hear what's up in your lives. Feel free to shoot us an email to the address in the podcast notes below. Thank you.